Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcripts can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up? Thanks for tuning in. I'm Brian Scott Rippy. This is another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today, we have Brody Miller of The Athletic as we continue Ole Miss's opponent preview series. Got into a lot of big picture stuff with OSU, uh, just kind of name the scandal type of thing. Not really, just kind of differentiating the basketball, the football, and the Title IX investigation and how that sort of – the first two, at least, not the basketball investigation, loom over Ed Orgeron, two new coordinators, uh, presumably a quarterback battle settled by default with Miles Brennan being injured, and uh, how much better they'll be on defense this year. So I thought it was pretty good stuff. Good to catch up with an old pal, Brody. So uh, – We'll get to that, but before we do, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix and an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the industry. You guys know what it is at this point. You need to go check it out, particularly as football season is rolling down the pipe. If you want to get back, NASCAR is apparently getting cranked back up. If you want to get into that, uh, I just got the word from the Skybox guys. If you buy a NASCAR package this month, uh, you can get 30% off or the already 20% off you get from using the promo code RIPPY by typing in NASCAR. So any NASCAR package, you can get 30% off by typing in NASCAR. And uh, you might as well go and check it out. They got daily passes, season passes, month-long passes, whether that's sports-centric, all sports. As football season gets here, you want the man to pay you. You don't want to pay the man. And Skybox is the only way to guarantee you will consistently be in the profit. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. And while you're at it, go buy LBs, University Avenue across from Kroger. Rippy Wright subscribers get a 16-ounce prime strip for 15 bucks and a $5 pack of sausage. That's a hell of a start to the weekend. LBs is the best place in Oxford, Mississippi, and the state of Mississippi, for that matter, to get meat. You need to go fill all your grilling needs. He's good, uh, He can pre, pre-make some Grove stuff. I've had a couple inquiries about that. Greg's got you taken care of there. All kinds of good sausages, fresh seafood, Lane Train special, Keith Carter special, bacon wrap filet. Uh, Greg's got it going on over there at LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. All right, here is Brody Miller. All right, we now welcome on good friend of mine, friend of the program, Brody Miller, does a wonderful job covering LSU at The Athletic. Uh, doesn't really have to do much because LSU is pretty boring beat. Not a whole lot happens there. But if you do want the occasional update on how LSU is functioning, it's at Brody A. Miller on Twitter. Uh, I don't have to explain what The Athletic is at this point. If you don't know what it is, can't help you. But I would encourage you to go subscribe to it. Um, what's up, man? How you doing? I am doing well. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure, man. I'm uh, just trying to get through camp one day at a time. I, I feel that for sure. It's funny. I was, I was reaching out to, to kind of set this thing up, and I realized we hadn't talked with the microphone on since last December. And I, I was sitting there thinking, like, wow, a lot's changed since then. And, like, in terms of, like, LSU and the conversation, it's, it is and it hasn't at the same time. It seems like it's the big – like, the ma- macro storylines are the same, but some of the micro stuff has changed. And uh, clearly, if you couldn't hint at the sarcasm in my voice in the introduction that I watched, you're a busy man because uh, yeah. LSU beat doesn't sleep. Uh, I don't know if you can print that on a shirt. I don't. I, <laughs> the idea. Um, I guess that's good a, idea. Yeah, like how are you? Do you you have like various notebooks? How are you compartmentalizing each thing you have to cover every day? I know that's a terrible question, but it is a lot of different shit at one time. Uh, yeah, I think it involves a good amount of. Well, I guess. Our, our friend Ross Dellinger is famous for his booze tweet that he does every time things get stressful. And guess what beat he started on? The LSU beat. So I think the theme is uh, booze helps and just going into basically every day knowing, hey, you know, something's going to happen. And if it doesn't, that's just a nice surprise. You know, like, shoot, I tried going golfing one day in like in, uh, in May. And then, of course, I'm on the ninth hole and TJ Finley transfers. It's just, yeah, you can never really relax. But, hey, man, I guess, it, uh, like you said, it makes our life easier because we don't have to think very hard, but it also makes it exhausting because there's just always something. Yeah, I guess with the TJ Finley deal, your editors at The Athletic would probably not be happy if you went with the whole, uh, write a headline and I'll get to it in four or five hours, the old Caddyshack method. I don't think you'd be able to do that. So, duty called, so. as always. That's probably as good a place any to start. So, as we head in, let's get, like, the fun stuff out of the way because this audience is certainly well-versed in NCAA terminology. And uh, Committee on Infractions, Lack of Institutional Control. Name the term. I'm pretty sure these uh, 
these folks listening have heard of it, except for one, which we'll get to in a minute. But that's probably a good place to like start and kind of canvas this whole LSU season because there's a lot of new with LSU and Edwards Ron. Two new coordinators, I think six new assistant yeah. assistants in total. Like on the field wise, it's kind of, I guess, looking towards bounce back year, whatever cliche you want to call it. But off the field, it's kind of a similar story as last year, particularly towards the end of the year. Let's start off the field, big picture. Timeline-wise, I know this is impossible to answer, but, like, where is LSU in its NCAA infractions case as far as football? And do you anticipate that playing a role in the, I guess, general storyline that is the 2021 LSU football team? Yeah, it, it's tricky. And I think the, my quick answer is I think they're still kind of in waiting mode. I know there's there was a report kind of recently that things might be coming down. But what makes it so tricky with the football situation is – the infractions football-wise aren't necessarily, you know, program killers. They're relatively – they're Odell handing out play cash – well, not play cash, real cash. And, like – and, you know, one player 10 years ago's parent. Now, of course, there's the Title IX investigation, which is a whole other massive thing, but that's not even part of the NCAA look. So it's like – and then it got looped into the Will Wade situation, which the Will Wade situation, obviously, basketball-wise is – the big one. No one knows what's going on there. I'm not sure if the FBI's been or the NCAA's been able to land much there. And but because and in, in, in the funny thing is, what I was always told was that off you know all events LSU's kind of NCAA issues football wise I should say were going to get wrapped up, kind of slap on the wrist, normal stuff for the stuff they did. And then the Odell thing happened, and it was kind of like, hey, that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way that you're doing this right then. But to answer your question, I, I still don't know exactly what's going to happen there. They lost a few scholarships on the back end, you know, but that's not even going to affect the class. It just goes from 85 to 80. And I don't know if there's going to be more coming, and I don't know what's going to happen with the Title IX investigation. But football-wise, I think the overall penalties aren't going to be very severe. I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah, it does. And that's actually probably I should have framed it a little bit better because it really is for the, the actual football NCAA investigation. It's really just three things, right? It's the – Odell, I am actually stunned the the fake cash excuse didn't work. That's usually yeah. Just really thought that was going to work. I think they said monopoly money. That was yeah. Yeah, that's that's tough because that's usually pretty bulletproof. So you can tell the NCAA's not screwing around because that usually works whenever I try it. But it's that it's the it's the no show job for Alexander, whatever his name was, the Arlady Lady Lake. All Alexander, yeah. Of course from a moral perspective, however the hell you want to look at it, kind of messed up. But in terms of like a pro, like you mentioned, you called it a program killer. Not really. And then what? there's no. another one that I forgot to write down. But The Our Lady of the Lake. Uh, well, that's tied into it. The Our Lady of the Lake embezzlement scandal had to do with the Vidal-Alexander situation too. Yeah, so it's really just the three main things. And like you mentioned, on paper with the way an NCAA infractions case is framed, that's not something that's going to – to kill like a program and particularly not a head coach. I mean, hell Ole Miss had a more serious thing on paper, strictly on paper from the NCAA's perspective. And if Hugh Freeze hadn't called escorts on a university issued cell phone, he might've actually survived the whole deal. Like in terms of like severity, that's not that severe on the surface, but is there a way at all? And I'm asking this literally out of ignorance because I don't know. Yeah. Can the Title IX thing leak into the punishment at all? Like, who is handling the Title IX investigation? And, like, how are they separate? Is there any way they could overlap in terms of punishment? So, my guess would be it can probably impact the tone of how things are handled. You know what I mean? Of just, like, how much much benefit of the doubt are we going to give you? Yeah, things like that. But in terms of the Title IX investigation, I think that's – still a ways away from things being tackled. I know there are two, and, and quite frankly, I think the federal investigations into that are, are far more concerning to LSU than the NCAA looking into it. You know what I mean? Where, I mean, LSU has, I think, three lawsuits going against them right now, two different federal investigations going on right now. Its own, you know, state is the state legislature is looking into it. I mean, so many things where it's more about that than it is what the NCAA might do about it. Because, and again, I say this without saying like I'm taking any blame away from this at all. I am not. I think there are a lot of things that were very poorly handled. But in terms of what the Hush Blackwell report found, for example, which is the the long investigation report that came out last this spring, they found that it was more of a university wide problem with its title IX compliance and sports were a fundamental part of that you know but they weren't necessarily like the wrongdoers at the core of it 
I'm not saying I know if that's true or not, but it does kind of make this tricky for an NCAA perspective where it's like, is football the thing that we, you're really going at right now or is the whole university? And that might not be an NCAA thing anyway. It's, it's, I always have a hard time with those situations because that's what makes the NCAA so tricky for me. It's just like, what exactly is their reach? I don't know. Right, because it's not like – this is not the not perfect examples, but like if you look at the Baylor and the Penn State thing, yeah, exactly. a lot of times yeah. when the NCAA tried to throw up some sort of punishment, particularly a harsh one, on a football program in particular and something that was university-wide, it kind of had trouble sticking. Like, yes, exactly. the program suffered dearly from that, from their attempts to do it, but the punishment itself, as it, is in, as it was in writing originally, they had a trouble, a hard time having that stick. And so I think that's probably an important thing to decipher. And then it seems like the basketball thing on its own is its own entire deal because I mentioned that this audience is probably familiar with pretty much all NCAA terms. Uh, Here's one that I had not heard of, the IARP committee. Not to be mistaken for AARP. That is different. That is an committee, something that the NCAA had after the whole Condoleezza Rice college athletics probe. So, like – the idea that the basketball and the football are separate, I imagine, has to help out football, not only from you trying to cover it and deci- decipher it, but particularly in terms of how the LSU football program orders are on the people working in it every day, uh, like their overall fate, like that has to help them to some degree, whereas the thing get kind of lumped together and kind of combined and, you know, Ole Miss had the track thing and they were technically separate NOAs, but not really. Like the fact that they're separate, I feel like helps the football team in terms of long-term future of the program. Absolutely. I mean, that was, that's their goal. But yeah, I think, I think everyone's still kind of figuring out what this IARP is really going to mean. I think it's kind of like made the pro like the goal was, I believe, to kind of expedite things and add like a way to actually like tackle this outside of the NCAA a little bit. But in turn, it's actually just been more of a, a clouding of everything and almost making things more difficult. And it, it, I, I think Pat Forty's line was a chain of it, a frustrating chain of inaction. So I think, uh, I'm at a point where I am officially giving up on really understanding all of that and and what's really going to come of it. I'll be honest. There's nothing to really to understand. We're at year three now of the basketball investigation. I'm just, and I don't know what's going to happen. I don't anymore. The way to still the LSU basketball coach and and LSU's eyes is not at risk of losing his job. Exactly. And like, you know, longer the days, it seems like forever ago that they did have the FBI, like the the federal Bureau of investigation for those of you who haven't Googled it, they are a pretty big deal. Like, they that's long ago were like the FBI raids. It's kind of crazy how all that's turned out, but yeah, it, you're right. There's not even a whole lot to understand because the Ole Miss thing ended up lasting over half a decade. And you heard yep. for, I mean, how almost 18 months, like it'll be here by this period. Then that <laughs> and it's finally like, okay, whatever. When it happens, it happens. And there's really no, like no sense in trying to figure it out. Cause there really is no method to the madness. I swear to God, those PNCA people sit in a room, and they're like, man, this seems like too much for us to handle. Let's come up with an acronym. You guys go sit in there, maybe give you a vest and a badge. You go sit in this room, and we're <laughs> going to call this this committee, and that'll buy us some time. That's the best I could figure out of it. No, I think you're right. I, I think you are right. So before, so as we kind of dive more into the football stuff with the, the uh, legal jargon out of the way to some degree, kind of one big picture thought I wanted to throw your way was as Ed rides into this season – after the disaster that was last season, whether it was the Miles Brennan injury or the defense not being very good and just everything that went into that pandemic, you know, forced season, however, whatever you want to call it. As he rides into this year, obviously that, that sort of result is not going to fly. Like that seems to be stating the obvious at the very least, but how do you weigh the results of what he does on the field this year versus I guess sort of a looming cloud with the NCAA thing, but most of it wasn't even an Ed Orgeron deal. So, like, I guess the best way to frame this was I talked to a Tennessee guy, Charlie Burris, a couple weeks ago, and we talked about how basically they tried to use the NCAA deal as a way to ouster an incompetent football coach. And I guess the best way to ask that is how do you balance that? And is there a world where LSU tries to do that if things go south on the field with Ed this year? Yeah, I, it's a good question. I think the way I always put it is, I always put it as, do I think Ed's on the hot seat? No. But do I put it as he has lost, you know, coming out of 2019 and all the capital a coach could ever want, right? I think that capital is all gone. And you're right. He's not, you know, he's been accused of things, but overall nothing's really held up in terms of what people accuse him of with the Title IX, for example, or what NCAA, most of that 
really does nothing with him. But what's tricky is, yeah, you have all these allegations that even if they're not sticking, they're just clouding up the, the Ed Ogeron uh, vibe right now with just everything going on with the Title IX investigation under his watch. Then you have the, uh, like you said, the NCAA stuff going on. Then you have maybe as important as anything, how we handled the protests last summer that also blew up in his face and he handled those poorly and kind of, you know, burned, like kind of lost the locker room for a little while. I think he's won it back, but still you had that whole thing. That was a bad look for him. Then you just have general, just, you know, things I won't get into, but just off the field things that are making life harder for him. So football wise, it's like, yeah, if he goes nine and three this year, he's fine. And he's 10 and two, or what's my expectation. Like he's fine. But yeah, say you go seven, five, eight, and four in a vacuum, would they fire him for that? No, you just won a title two years ago. But it's like, hey, maybe you underachieved this year and you have all these just none, no one of them's bad enough to fire somebody, but four or five little things that are just looking murky for him and they're just looking for a reason. Yeah, I, I always, there's a part of me that always wonders if LSU is look, like is preparing or getting their ducks in a row, if need be, to find a way to get rid of them with cause. I have that thought. I am not predicting that. I'm definitely not reporting that. But that is a vibe you get sometimes. They are not exactly bending over backwards to defend Ed Ogeron right now through some of this stuff, for example. So, yeah, I think when I say he's on the hot seat, when I say there's clear-cut, you know, like that kind of pressure on him, no but he cannot afford to have another down here. Let's say that. Yeah, you brought up an interesting like piece of that that I probably should have thought, but like with every – like the whole like scope of all this is so wide, it's often like hard to – like you think yeah. you kind of have the gist of it and it's like, oh, shit, I forgot about this piece of it over here. To your yeah. point, like if there were trying to do some form of a Jeremy Pruitt route, it would actually probably be more geared to the Title IX piece of it rather than the NBA investigation itself. And that's, I guess, something I didn't think about. When I yeah, I think the NCAA play. stuff with LSU is overall just not really much of a right, you know, like a real day to day concern. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so that that certainly makes sense. And so it's crazy. One of the crazy things, and I think we talked about this last winter when Ole Miss was playing LSU in December, and it was kind of crazy how fast you talk about the capital you can build up from a national championship. Clearly, particularly in a in you know the way he came into the job, people doubting him from day one and not thinking he could do it. I mean, that night in January of 2020, like, I don't know if anyone on earth at any profession had any, I guess, college sports profession, over there maybe Dabo and Saban, had any more yeah. capital built up at their respective program. And to see, no. how, yeah, how quickly it all eroded is kind of wild. Was that surprising? I say surprising to you. Your job is to report on everything that's happening every day, so probably not a ton surprises you. But when you look back at it now, it is kind of crazy that it eroded that quickly. Yeah, I mean, there's really not much precedent for that. I mean, even a Chizik or something like that, even that just feels different to me because it was like he landed one perfect recruit and it just kind of worked. This was like, Ed Ogeron, like all the things he was given credit for were real, at least in my personal opinion. Like they were earned. It was like, oh, he actually built this program up for three years and built three straight great classes. He landed Burrow. He built a perfect staff. He hired Joe Brady out of nowhere. Like, he built a really good culture, actually. Like, that was one of the things I'll give him the most credit for. All of those things were real, and coming out of it, yeah, like you said, he could hire anyone he wanted. Well, what do he do? Bo Pelini and Scott Linehan, those bombs. Uh, he could, you know, he, he, and it's not like, again, the reason I like it's the capital like, isn't just, hey, you want a title. People have won titles before. It's that like he was this Louisiana guy, and he was – you know, the most Louisiana person in a state where, like, being from that state means more than not most states. And, and he does that and he wins the title the way he did it, the way of that whole storyline of Ole Miss to USC to here. Like, every part of it, it was, like, the perfect coronation and then to mess up those hires so bad. And I always put it as, in this part, I'm not defending it by any means, but just, like, you have to be a little, like, I don't know, empathetic and just, like, it was like a perfect storm of how things could go wrong. The same way 2019 was a perfect storm of how things could go right. It's like you just reached the height of your profession. You know, you just did it. You are on top of the world. And then you get divorced a month or two later. That's tricky. That's a lot of stuff going on, right? Then a pandemic hits. All right, now things are even harder. 
and you're replacing 19, 20, with the opt-outs ended up being, I believe, 20, 21 starters from the title team. So it's like you have an entirely new team, which is hard anyway. Your infrastructure's gone. Half your staff's gone. You're going, your personal life's just messy, you know, for lack of a better word. Pandemic's happening. So even like the things that you would normally be fixing with a replaced team, harder to do than it's ever been. And you got your hires wrong. It's just this perfect storm of, then the social justice stuff happens, and then you misplay that. And it's just everything that kind of, then the Title IX investigation, which again, like most of the reporting, I should say, predates him. There's just so much happening, a perfect storm of messiness where I think a lot of blame falls on Ed, and I think Ed takes a lot of blame. But then there's a party that's like, some of this is just so out of his control, and so much went wrong more than any defending champ you could ever imagine. It's just like, I don't know where I stand and I guess it's not my job to figure that out, but I struggle with like how much do you hold against him and how much don't you, but back to your question. Yeah. It's wild that he lost it kind of this much. And, and Hey, I'll say this and then back to you, but like the one thing I will always credit Ed for, and I think that has a lot of flaws and a lot of strength, his greatest strength. The thing that won him a title is that he knows how to figure out what he's wrong, listen to other people and adjust. Not many people can do that. How many human beings can, and he did that to win 2019. This is the biggest test of that ever. Can he adjust from all the things he just kind of, I'm not going to say messed up, but got wrong for lack of a better word. This is what we're going to find out. So it's uh, such a fascinating year for so many reasons. And that's all you for it. Yeah, great answer there. Because like it is, it's so much to like, like so much was on his plate at one time. And yes, these guys are handsome, paid handsomely yeah. to end other things on their plate. But I mean, my God, even like that. And it's kind of crazy because there's, some eerie similarities to the whole entering the 2019 season where there's, you know, I mean, it's yeah. mostly just gossip and talk radio whispers of, you know, if this guy does can't get this higher right in terms of the coordinators and the quarterback, he might yeah. not make it through this season. And then it came together in about as perfect way as you could possibly imagine. It almost feels like he's back to that in some sense. And another thing you mentioned about all the stuff that went on, whether it was his personal life or the, or the pandemic and the social justice movement that happened last summer that he didn't exactly play well and kind of created some strife in the locker room. All of that stuff on top of hiring a new staff. And then on top of the extracurricular stuff that we covered earlier, there's also just an element of difficulty of being the coach in the program that won a national title. You see it even yeah. more so in professional sports where the team that wins the title has the shortest off season I mean, they spend a month of it drunk, but there's media tours <laughs> and shit like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's the extra yeah. stuff that just becomes, like, part of the reward of being successful is added into the mix there. And so you brought up a good point that I hadn't even really thought about, where it's like, yes, he deserves a lot of blame for some of it, but my God, like, could anyone have handled all of that at one time? And so I guess I'll kind of, like, settle on it here to where you bring up an interesting point. LSU won the national title. They could have hired – name J.A. or Preps coach, and it would have been like, okay, I don't know about this, but, like, trust him. <laughs> the same, like, what the hell is he doing? Because they just won a national title. In yep. hindsight, Bo Pelini in particular was yep. just a brutal hire. And I don't think that got the credit in terms of, like, how it was perceived at the time. It was like, oh, yeah, Bo Pelini been there on the block a while. And it should have been like, oh, this is probably going to be a disaster. Yep. Spinning it forward to this year, two new coordinators. Yes, kind of give me your – short spiel on both of them and how important they are to Ed's future, because I don't feel like he can get this wrong again. Absolutely. No. And, and I'll, by the way, I will fess up. Yeah. I ra I, I had the, all the concerns about Queenie. Of course I did. We all did, but I rationalized them. I rationalized every one of those things. And it's like, cause like we're saying, it's just the, it's me and T-Bob's our old, my old co-host T-Bob Abear. Like our thing was like, it's like the benefit of the doubt club, right? Alabama and Clemson are the benefit of the doubt club. When they lose 15 guys. I'm like, yeah, but they're going to replace them. It's fine. You know, you just assume. LSU is like, for at least one year, I put them in the benefit of the doubt club. I'm like, oh, I trust Eddie. If I see something, it's like, no. That was just a terrible hire by anybody. anyway. You can't um, do that. Like, you were T-Bob on the podcast. You just won a national title. Like, you're just going to be the world's biggest asshole being like, this is a terrible move when you reach the pinnacle of the sport. Like, no one did yeah. that. Part of it's playing the result. But, like, yeah, it's just a shitty spot to be in. Like, you know what I mean? Like, you can't, you can't crush a hire after they won a title. Absolutely. So I think onto the new hires, I, I, I always, my, one of my favorite things to follow in sports is how each hire, the next hire is such a response to the previous one. I think that's actually 
this is not a criticism, but I think it's like a flawed way of thinking when it's like, it's not quite how things work, you know, but still, right. anyway. I think when LSU did their own, say, uh, autopsy on 2020, uh, I think one of the main things they found was, okay, our staff was not connecting with players. And you saw that through the social justice thing and you saw that through so much, but, and some, and I'll get to that in a second, the pandemic plays in there, of course, but I think there was this thing of like half that staff was 60 plus year old white guys. And those were very good coaches. Steve Ensminger, for example, is a guy who I give so much credit to, great coach, but it's just, there was a lot of that. And there were only, I think, three black, two or three black coaches on the staff and all that. And mixed with all those other problems, I think there was a clear emphasis to connection, to hiring a representative staff. I wrote a story this summer about how else you did this huge movement in the past year to improve in its racial climate and all that. And I, and I think hiring was a big part of that. And so there definitely was a mandate to get a more diverse staff, but even more than that, it was about, and I think they thought about this actually the right way, where it was like, you want a staff that is more representative and younger because you want guys who actually know how to connect with players. Your roster is like 80% black and you have like a 20% black staff. How do you think you're going to connect? Your staff's 65 and players are 19. How do you think you're going to connect? So I think when they were hiring and getting to the point, they obviously settled on. Jake Peets is their offensive coordinator. I believe he uh, is turning 40. Or yeah, I believe he was 39 when he was hired. Uh, Durante Jones, defensive coordinator from the Minnesota Vikings, 41, young black man. Uh, DJ Mangus is their pass game coordinator. He's, I believe, 32, 33. Uh, then you got, I mean, in their host, like you said, six new hires. Blake Baker's their linebackers coach from Miami. He's in his 30s. Andre Carter's their D-line coach, former NFL DN. We all just watched recently. He's in his 30s or maybe coming up on 40. Um, and, and, and then offensive line coach now is Brad Davis and another young 30-something black coach. So I think there was just clearly this movement. But on top of that, there was this movement for presence was this big buzzword. And that goes back to the same thing where I think they realized, like, yes, yeah, scheme matters. Of course, scheme matters. Joe Brady's scheme was brilliant, all that stuff. And Jake Beats, I think, really highly up there. But it's like, you also are LSU. And I think there's this goes back to the response thing where it's like, LSU's talent is still by default good enough to always be at the top. But they needed somebody who could fix some of these problems and really come in there, connect with that roster. And Keats and Jones – two of their biggest strengths I'd say is they are people, people, you know, they are people who are very charismatic and connect with these guys who actually like, and they, it can sound hokey, but very much are like when they get in that door, it's more about like getting to know a guy, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's actually how they see the world. So I think that was a huge part of this hire and we'll see how the results play out, but I can confirm just in my own recording, like they've succeeded in that part. Like they really develop relationships. They really, you know, done well there. The scheme part, who knows? Durante Jones has never even coached play call plays anywhere near this level. Uh, Pete's has a little more experience in that way, but still, you know, you still have these urban and OCs at this level. So I think you have a lot of concerns there, but there is that mandate of younger, better recruiting, sharper, all those things. So it'll be fascinating to see because they're coming off a of staff, as we said, that was experience knowing scheme, knowing, you know, being around football forever, all that stuff, and that backfired because they were so outdated. Yeah, you're, yeah, and that's a, a, something I hadn't thought about in all of that, too, is, like, on top of everything you said, like, there's also, like, a, age, and it also, them, like, so much of it being new, like, if, I guess if the entire 2019 staff had come back, you probably could have skirted some of that, even if the staff wasn't as representative because they know each other to where now you don't get the spring with those guys and they didn't connect. And as you mentioned, you know, Bo Pelini, I, I probably not the greatest guy in terms of connecting and bonding with yeah. people and kind of understanding particular larger societal issues as well. And so <laughs> I, I think that's incredibly important. It's something I hadn't thought about until you just mentioned that. So now they get younger, they get more diverse staff, it obviously probably going to be a little more relatable just naturally with age and a, the whole generational thing as well. With that being in place, I, this is, I know it's LSU's like second or third day of camp, so this is a terrible question, but just quick synopsis of what you think they're going to look like schematically on both sides of the yeah. football compared to what we saw a year ago. That's what's funny. I don't think that much is going to drastically change. I mean, off, like, I don't think their offense was broken last year. I think what happened offensively was you lose Miles Brennan, and then, and then you're relying on two true freshman quarterbacks and a pandemic. You know, I think I think the offense was probably fine, but still, 
I will say this, Ed Ogeron has not hidden the fact that, I mean, it's like his new catchphrase that he's saying, we're getting back to 2019. We're getting back to Joe Brady's offense, which I think might be a flawed way to frame it. But uh, I, I think there is a clear mandate, and Jake Beats and DJ Mangus are two guys who – Mangus is one of Joe Brady's best friends and was on the 2019 staff. Both of them were the Carolina Panthers with Brady last year. Beats was his, his quarterback coach. So there is a clear – maybe even flawed in its thinking, just pushed to get back to 2019. So their offense last year wasn't that far from 2019, but still in terms of scheme. But they're getting back to some of those things, those principles, just getting guys in space and letting your insane LSU talent just make plays. And that's kind of what the simple theme of 2019 was. So I think that part's not going to look that crazy different. Defensively, Durante Jones, it is still going to be a four-man front in base level it's so basically four two five since we all know they to play nickel uh i i think the difference is going to be it's going to be a little faster and it's going to be more zone and it's going to be simpler because i think the, the other big theme from this offseason is communication because we anyone who watched lsu's defense last year can vouch they looked lost at all times it was incompetence it was cornerbacks passing it off to the safety because they did one of those matchup zone schemes where you're passing guys off, but the safety's running 10 yards the other way, so then a guy's 50 yards wide open downfield, and the amount that happened is honestly just a football watcher depressing to watch. And, uh, so I think there's just this huge focus with Durante Jones on just, like, communication, everybody knowing what they're doing, everybody being on the same page, and just getting back to simplicity because, again, I hate to over oversimplify football, but it's like – at least defensively, LSU, you should by default be a top half of the SEC defense if you're just playing smart base football. I know you shouldn't actually do that. You know what I'm saying? So I think, yeah, I think there's going to be a big move on that. But yeah, it's going to be attacking. It's going to be an attacking 4-3 in, in overall philosophy. So I don't th- long answer, I don't think that what we see is going to be that drastically different. It's just going to be about execution and efficiency. I think they, got, they lost their fastball move over last year. Yeah, and there was always probably going to be a drop-off from the 2019 defense, right, with the amount they had to replace. But that was kind of exacerbated, underscored, whatever you want to call it, by the fact that, one, hired probably not the greatest, everything that went on leading up into that season. I mean, if there was ever a way, like a coaching staff, like if there's a litmus test for a coaching staff in terms of just checking all the boxes, last year tested them, particularly new staffs, (laughs) in every sense of the word. And, you know, for as much – you know, praise and whatever is Ole Miss and Lane Kiffin has gotten in the offseason. I think one of the more underrated aspects of what they were able to do was exactly kind of what you mentioned, what LSU staff wasn't able to do in the sense that they got the kids to buy in. I mean, the fact that Matt Corral, after surviving the plague that was Rich Rodriguez, the fact that they convinced him to stay at Ole Miss and kind of buy into what that could be is kind of a miracle. And it it relates to the defensive side of the football too with Durkin and Partridge because – they also sucked defensively. There was not a ton of results to point to throughout the whole year. So that part is incredibly important. This year, probably guys coming back a little bit easier to kind of manage that transition will be smoother. So, and as you mentioned, offense wasn't the problem. So when Brennan was the quarterback last year, yeah, the first three games didn't go great for OSU, but it certainly was not because they weren't scoring enough points and being efficient offensively. And I guess let's start with Brennan then before we get to Max Johnson, because Shit, that kid can't catch a break. I mean, just oddly, he breaks his arm fishing a week before camp. Where do you – where is what – what do you – how would you describe someone to Miles Brennan in two minutes in terms of what his career's been yeah. at LSU so far? Because none of it's been his fault, and the small sample size you got was actually quite good, even though the end results weren't great as a team. Absolutely. I think that's what's so unfortunate. Is, yeah, he's a guy who came in as like – Top 200 recruit, which for LSU at the time at quarterback wasn't common. Like, they didn't get those kind of quarterbacks. Right. And he was supposed to be the face of them going modern and finally doing it. Then he gets stuck behind Joe Burrow. Then he's hurt in 2018 with a back injury as the backup. Then he finally gets his chance after waiting three seasons in 2020. And three games in, he's averaging 370 yards a game and tears his abdominal. And it's just like, wow, you just feel for the kid. Tough situation. And then now he's coming back, and Max Johnson's making it a quarterback competition. So, again, can't catch a break. You're going into the spring. It's your, you know, he's a fifth-year senior, probably 23 years old, and this is your last real quarterback competition, and you break your arm on a fishing trip. And it's just like you – know, some of it, yeah, it's like, hey, man, sometimes you're just not durable, but some of it's just like he can't catch a break. Three major injuries in four years, and – 
you know, he's going to be going into pull up technically a year or two of eligibility left, but still just the idea that you're going to be going in your sixth year in college and still never really been a starter. Just a, just a pretty sad situation. Absolutely. I know I'm asking you to completely speculate and project here, but in terms of his future, like no one would blame him to go somewhere else, particularly depending on the way this year goes and just say, okay, fresh start. But reading a decent bit amount from at least what they're saying publicly, and I know no one's like neither he or his father is going to be like, not a hell with this place. We're going somewhere else. Like, that's <laughs> never going to happen. But there yeah. does seem to be some genuineness in reading between the lines that he very badly wants to be the quarterback at LSU. He wants to be LSU's yeah. starting quarterback and kind of beyond everything that comes with it, but just be, live in that moment for a year or two because we, it changed Joe Burrow's life. Like, there's something that just – is life-changing about it, even off the field as well. So that he does seem to very badly want to yeah. do that. Eight, 12 months out, nine months out before it even particularly matters. If you had to guess, do you think he's back at LSU next year? And again, I'm asking you to totally guess. No, this no, year. you're good. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's hard to imagine he's back next year just because, like, I, let's put it this way. Say, say he comes back in, like, November. That's, like, a very optimistic outline. It's like, all right, like – Max Johnson's still probably going to be the guy. And if Max Johnson does that, like the only possible way I could see him staying is if Max Johnson does so poorly that by the time Brennan's back, he gets a chance in those two, three weeks and thrives. But like that is such a small percentage chance of all those things coming together. And, and the main thing that, that makes me feel relatively sure though, it's just unlikely for him to come back. Even though, like you said, he wants to, he loves LSU is from Louisiana. He's a Brennan in Louisiana. Like that means something restaurant royalty but it's the idea that all right max johnson's a starter and he's a sophomore so again if he works out possibly three years left then they have garrett nussmeyer as a freshman who's the highest recruit they've brought in in a decade or so top 100 guy wowed them all spring as an early enrollee so he's next up and then they have the highest recruit in two decades coming at quarterback walker howard the five-star and other louisiana kid. So it's the idea that like it just seems like there's so much youth coming in at quarterback and he's about to be a sixth year guy who's never started. It's just like one sake just seems unlikely he'll get that job back. And two, for your own sake, just go somewhere, you know, you are going to play and get out there and go, go try to be the starting quarterback. at I don't know another SEC school or, or Southern Miss or whatever, you know, I think you just gotta, so I, my long answer, short answer is just, I, I, I find it unlikely he's back but I wouldn't rule it out for the reasons you said. He doesn't want to be at LSU. Yeah, and that's the interesting part about all of this is like, so with that aside and kind of his future in the balance, you, they do turn to Max Johnson now by default, right? That was going to be a competition. Yes. Now it is not a competition by, like I mentioned, by default. Like, how would you gauge Max Johnson going into the season? Because it was kind of all over the place last year. I think he was fine. And then he really kind of seemed to – hit his stride in those last two games, but at the same time, like who didn't against that old Miss defense? Yeah. He showed some stuff in the Alabama game. And then of course the whole Florida game kind of was a, a legend in its uh, you know, that, that night entire night was just kind of legendary. Like, what are you, what are expectations for him this season as LSU wants to get back to the 2019 LSU? Do you think he's capable of doing so? I yeah, maybe not 2019, of course, but I do, you know, it's, yeah, not it's worth pointing out that, you know, one, I think it's again, you never want to like dance on Miles Brennan's grave, but he, Max Johnson, was expected to win that job. It was kind of quietly understood it was his job for a few months now, you know. And no one now, after the fact, people are finally coming out saying it, but kind of the world I've been hearing for months. And then you add in, it's tough to evaluate Johnson's year because you're right, you know, when he came in late against Auburn or AM, you know, he didn't look great or anything, he didn't look bad or good, but. He only had two starts. Those games he was coming in, usually in blowouts or really ugly games, and just thrown into a messy situation. And I think what was big and what really won at Ogeron over I know is that, all right, your, your first start ever at Florida. Florida's on the verge of the playoff. You're on the road. Eric Gilbert and Terrace Marshall just opted out. You're, you have, I think their COVID numbers, they were down to literally like 57 players. Like everything about that was a disaster and they should have gotten routed. And he came out there as a 19-year-old, 18-year-old freshman and just looked like a grown-up. And he just managed that offense like a veteran. And he threw for three touchdowns, 240 yards. He, he's, he showed he's actually really – he's a mobile guy. He's probably like 
again, I'm not saying like he's probably faster than say Joe Burrow just in terms of like nimbleness. And so I think he really wowed them in that setting on the road, just doing the little stuff he did. He just looked like a veteran in terms of, yeah, again, like Burrow doesn't have a huge arm, but just knows how to use it. And then you go into Mississippi and like you said, not a great defense, but throw 430 yards, show this incredible, Incredible connection with Keishon Booty, the, the freshman. Now that's their connection for the next two years and all that, where it's like Ed Ojean loves to say, he's like, there's only one quarterback at LSU that's 2-0 and right now. And, you know, as a starter. So you have the idea that he took this team when they were at their lowest and went 2-0 and and won their biggest game of the season and the toughest of situations as a freshman, all that stuff. There's just this little bit of like, this guy's got something, which is not a good way to look at it, sure. But on top of that, he – he does the things that they're looking for. You know, we keep using this term if they want to get back to 2019. And again, a lot of Ed Ogeron's thinking is framed through that. And right or wrong, a big thing that Joe Brady loved, and that, you know, I wrote this a few weeks ago that and it's not nothing. Joe Brady once told me his two things he cares about in a quarterback are processing ability and accuracy. It's not about the huge arm. Ben's going to win that battle. It's, not, it's about like, can you just make a quick decision? Can you read a defense fast? And Brennan's solid at that, but Max Johnson tested off the charts in that category. He did. So he, they love his processing, and that's what they like to believe will get them back to 2019 is that guy who's ahead of the defense, even if he doesn't have the biggest arm. Then you add him, he's accurate. He's going to be better than he was as a raw, true freshman on the road, and he's accurate, and he is a really good mobile quarterback, which they also like to kind of, you know, obviously it's modern football. You want mobility. So I think they like him for all those reasons course they're concerned hey small sample size two not the strongest arm all that stuff three your quarterback depth now is tricky but I I think Max Johnson you know has a chance to be a real dude and you know Burrow should not be the metric that's not fair but in LSU recent history the last 20 years what's his metric I don't know Mettenberger uh Matt Flynn I don't know but he has a chance to be better than those guys. Yeah, I feel decent about that, that if he if he puts it all together and he has good pieces. So, again, the way T-Bob and I always put it was, who won this battle doesn't change our prediction of the season. Because we felt it was close. We felt both are good enough to start for half the SEC. So it wasn't, it's not going to change much, but I think Johnson has a chance to really cement a greater leg. Yeah, I guess if that makes sense. Absolutely. And so kind of looking around him, because – one of the things that Joe Burrow had to do last year as an NFL rookie was kind of mask the deficiencies around what was a pretty incompetent Cincinnati Bengals offense. He did yeah. not have to do that at LSU. Like, I think probably the most important part of the Burrow thing was him in the time he did play last year, always healthy. It was like, this guy's awesome. Like, he went from having better players than pretty much everyone he was going to play to probably not as good to worse and still look fine despite you fearing for his life every Sunday Again, it's almost like natural just because that's the last guy to come through. But you're right. It's a terrible like benchmark or comparison. But I guess kind of looking around and having an offensive line that you think will probably be better, but certainly needs to be better than a year ago. No feature running back, if I have that correctly, probably not. But I'm not sure that matters in a decent collection of receivers, but certainly not 2019-esque. Do you think he's capable of masking any sort of deficiency that develops around LSU offensively? And I guess the second part of that is, how do you think the, I guess, core around him will end up? Like, what, what is your kind of prognosis yeah. on that for now? Yeah, the masking thing, I think maybe that's where the mobility comes into play, the idea of, like, hey, that helps you there. But, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to make of this O-line, for example, where they probably overall grade-wise grade, like, right in the middle. They were okay. You know, they had, like, three games they were great, three games they were awful, and the rest were just somewhere in the middle. I don't know how I feel. So it's one of those things where everyone talks about, hey, everyone's coming back, and everyone did come back. That's a huge plus. Yeah, but it's not like not, not like that convinces me they're going to be an amazing O-line. It just makes me think, like, all right, they might get better. It might be pretty solid. I don't expect a leak or anything like that. So to your point, I don't know if Max Johnson – I'll go back to the process, I guess. That is so big for them. Now, the idea that that's – again, like, everyone's talking about Burrow's amazing skills and all that. His greatest skill is Burrow is actually, like, a holy crap off-the-charts processor. Like, one of the best in the NFL already. And, and so I think – the idea that Johnson can maybe even come close to that ability to not need an O-line. You know, it's like the idea that you can get the ball out before that is obviously such a big part of Joe Brady's scheme and whatnot, going five wide, all that. So I think, yes, he can mask that stuff. Do I think he's the kind of talent that Burrow was? Or, or you know, other, I'm thinking of like a Cam Newton or guys like that who like 
make up for just weak teams? No, I don't think so. I think he's a guy who is meant to elevate pieces around him, not a guy who's meant to take over for pieces around him. So I, I look at this team and I see an average, possibly above average O-line. I see a talented running back room, but a really frustrating and disappointing one that just hasn't really put it together, hasn't really been disciplined, so much talent, but they haven't performed. I look at I do think it's a loaded receiver. I do. I think Kayshawn Booty is one of the, you would assume one of the four or five best receivers in the SEC this year coming in. And not much established behind them, but, and I say this as somebody who's like, like running back, like I said, right? They're deep, but I'm not confident in one through four. Receiver, they're deep. Yeah. Receiver, they're deep, and I'm like, I'm confident two through eight. You know, it's one of those teams, you know, because there's a difference. And so I do think, I don't know what's going to happen. They got like four freshmen who are top 100 recruits, good enough to play. We'll see who becomes, you know, cream more eyes at the top, all that stuff. Jare Jenkins had a really good year. They're crazy about this tight end receiver hybrid, Jack Besh, that I think is a name to know that he is a, a, a receiver, but he's really built, and they really think he can be there for lack of a better word, there's Thaddeus Moss, that guy who's just going to spread linebackers and safeties out. So I, I don't know if it's going to be an elite surrounding group, but I think it's going to be a good one. And that is, it almost makes judging Johnson more fascinating. It's almost to your point. It's like, you will literally find out how good he is because he has a good enough surrounding to be great. Not a good enough that can take over for him. And it's like, it's kind of just how good are you, man? And that's, it's almost the most fun for us as a writer because everything's solid. Can he make it great? Can he make it bad? We'll see. Absolutely. And yeah, if you want any sort of indicator of about, and again, last year was the first year I wasn't like covering it full time. So I didn't have like the exact same perspective, but if you want an indicator of just how like horrendous the Ole Miss defense has been over the last half decade, particularly while I was around, uh, Booty had 14 catches for 308 and three touchdowns. And I didn't absurd. remember that happening because it was just probably <laughs> so commonplace. Cause I was like, I was looking through it earlier today when I was kind of prepping for this. And I was like, Holy shit. Like he set an sec single game record, which like yeah. that got to the point where you look at the game notes for old Miss's opponent every week. And you just kind of expect to see new records set. <laughs> like, like that, that's wild to me that that didn't stick out. And the kid went for a 300 burger. Like, I mean, I saw what, you know, everyone talked to, it was so funny to me. Like the people that don't watch college football were talking about how like, Devonta Smith was slept on and I was like not anyone that actually what? watched him I watched what he did to Ole Miss what? in the first half of 2019 like he was like he caught the game winner in 17 like, yeah what are we talking about? shadowed by anybody like it was the whole narrative was that they wanted the two guys that came out before year before him They're like oh he kind of sat behind them I was like no he did not because it Ole Miss he's been a starter for three years yeah, yeah he, unbelievable and so like the, the, but performances like Devonta Smith and Booty like those were so commonplace that it was just wild to me where I looked that up this morning and I was like, I don't even remember that happening. Like everyone towards yep. that defense, which is crazy. So I guess kind of the last thought on the offense before we get to defense and get out of here is like in your mind, August, whatever this is, three practices into camp, of course this would change. But like if you had to like paint a picture of the best version of LSU's offense this year, what do you think that looks like? That's a great question. Huh? huh. I really thought of it through like those terms. That's probably the best way to look at it. I think I'm pretty confident it won't be a bad offense. You know, I, I, I feel decent about that, especially because Johnson's strengths. Um, I don't see it being a Bama offense because I think Bryce Young might tear it up. I don't see it even being like Georgia's ceiling if, if they do what they can or, but, or an Ole Miss. You know, I have feeling they'll be in like that second tier of like those four to seven, which four to seven in the SEC is still – a top 25 defense in the offense in the country. So like, yeah, I have a feeling it's not going to be an off the charts offense. I think it's going to be a really solid, efficient offense that has upside, but it's almost so hard to answer because the same thing we're saying about how like I'm confident there's talent in the scope positions, like more than all, but I don't know, six teams in the country. Right. But I don't know who's going to be the star besides booty. I don't know who's going to take over. So it almost makes answering that so hard. And I, I know it's like a cop out, but it's like, I didn't know Clyde Edwards Hilaire was going to be a superstar. I knew they had good running backs or I didn't know uh, Jamar, I definitely didn't know Jamar Chase was going to do that. I knew they had good receivers. So it's like that thing of like, are they going to be good or is someone going to become a star? That's a pure cop out answer, but I, I think they're going to be a good offense unless another guy or two becomes a star, I think it won't be. Elite. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I mean, it's the best answer to give. I mean, you could blow smoke <laughs> up all of our collective asses and just be like, this is what I think they'll do. And then, you know, not that anyone's <laughs> going to listen or remember to this in three months, but just like, you know, be completely wrong. It's better just to be like, I don't know half the time. I, you know, yeah. but in this hot what I do, we live in, I, I make a living on just like saying something, alluding to an opinion, but actually saying nothing. If you do that forever, you will never fail. Yeah, yeah you're set. You'll never have anyone ultra pissed at you. So, yes. Tra- <laughs> transitioning to the other side of football. LSU, to me, just looking on paper and as someone who doesn't follow it every day, it seems like to me that they were lost a ton last year. They had a bunch of dudes, obviously, I mean, Stingley not included in this, but like a bunch of guys that got a lot of playing time, maybe learned some tougher lessons, and maybe it was a little harder to be with the dysfunction around them and the, you know, their defensive coordinator not having a firm grasp on things. But it seems like there's certainly the talent on the roster for them to be much better defensively just by yeah. default of guys having a shit ton more snaps under their belt. You know they'll be good in the secondary. What is your biggest concern LSU-wise, and what are you most, like, intrigued to find out? I would imagine it it happens to be in the front six, front seven, whatever you want to call it. Like, how do you kind yeah. of view that? Because the secondary seems like it'll be good. Yeah, I think it's, it's a great – I think there's two areas I know are just, like, as good as any in the country, maybe as, like cornerback, you have what two of the four or five, probably just agreed best corners going into the season and Stingley and Ricks. Uh, I'm not sure I actually agreed Ricks top five, but you had an amazing year last year. So yeah, you're elite at corner, you know that. And you were pretty much borderline elite at D line, at least in the term of there are no exaggeration, eight to 10 deep of like borderline starters on the D line. They don't yet have that household name, but they have like, you know, B. Joe Jalari, Andre Anthony, and, and, and Ollie Gay were all you know, pretty great players last year at DN. Those guys are in a rotation at DN. D tackle, Glenn Logan and Neil Farrar are like four year starters back for like year five. Jaquelin Roy was a star. He played great against Ole Miss. Mason Smith's the number one D tackle in the country coming in. He's going to be in that rotation. Joe, and then the funny thing is, they said Joseph Evans might have had not a huge recruit, might have had the best spring. So, Long story short, D-line should just be loaded. and Rotation, as you know, is so crucial there. Linebacker was a huge problem last year. I think they shorted up. I don't know what its ceiling is, but it's one of those things where they have four guys who are capable of starting. So I feel confident it's going to be okay. I don't think it's going to be great. Mike Jones coming in from Clemson, I think he'll be a really good cover linebacker, which is so important nowadays to have. And, you know, uh, Bug Strong, Mississippi guy, uh, you know, uh, he's a guy who I think they think could really start. He's a thumper at linebacker. He's really good. Damone Clark had a really bad year last year, but there is an optimism that he can be like a that, – that's so much of last year was Polini, was the pandemic, that he can be more – be the point being, I think linebacker will be fine. I'm getting to safety, which I think is the question mark. You know, and again, just like linebacker, they did shore it up. I don't think it's going to be a disaster anymore, but it's definitely the question. They moved Jay Ward over from corner – and he actually, like, won the spring. Like, he all of a sudden is, like, a guy that, like, he should be an all-SEC safe. So they love him. But, again, even though I'm riding that train, I think really highly of him, never seen him play safety in a game. So no assurances there. And then that second spot, it's like you got a fifth-year guy in Todd Harris. He hasn't had a great career. He got a five-star safety in Sage Ryan, who is a superstar recruit, but never want to rely on a freshman. Uh and then Jordan Tolles had a disappointing freshman year. You're hoping he takes the leap. But you don't know. So safety is definitely the question, especially because that was arguably the weakest of any spot in 2020. And it's not like it's more sure this year. So I think safety is where your concern is. But my overall thoughts on the defense is there's no just like glaring weakness. You And you have two just clear strengths, like clear like – and when you have a good defensive coordinator, I don't know yet if Durante Jones is, but when you have a good defensive coordinator, you know how to – use your two strengths to alleviate any concerns. When you have a D line that can take things up and corners that can literally just eliminate the outside and for perspective on how good those corners are, but how, but also tells you how bad the defense was last year. LSU's out was actually like one of the better in the country outside the hashes, which is amazing. To think yeah. It's crazy to think about like they were like, you know, I think they both their completion rates against them were in the low forties. They were fantastic which it, it makes it even more mind-boggling. They're the worst defense in the SEC when you're a lead on the outside. That means your stuff in the middle is so, like, just off the charts bad. That's almost impressive. But I also use that as a positive, the idea that, like, and I, we talked about this earlier, it's like if you can just alleviate 
the just brain farts and like incompetence, then you should be really good defense. And I know it doesn't work like that, but I kind of default to that. But it's like, it was so just stupid. And I hate talking like that, but it was so dumb sometimes. If you can move that, you should be great. And I don't, I don't know if it's going to work like that. But I do think, yeah, you have so many starters back. You have like 33 starters back on the whole team, guys who have at least started one game. You have so much experience, so much kind of chip on your shoulder after last year. My gut is the defense will actually be the strength. They don't deserve the benefit of the doubt after last year, so it's a hard take to have. But my gut tells me they'll be the strength. The offense will be pretty good, but we'll see. Yeah, that makes sense. And, like, unlike, you know, Ole Miss is kind of in a similar position where they've tried to replenish the talent pool there, which feels like it's, like, been a half-decade-long process. But they still don't have it from a depth perspective, which LSU certainly has because they haven't had, like, the the roster bottoming out, you know, fueled by NCAA sanctions and stuff that Ole Miss has had. And it was, like, in 18, it got so bad with the Wesley McGriff defense. The example I always like to use was a guy would catch a ball, particularly in the flats, and no one would be within one of the television screens. Like you could have panned around and there's not a guy there. And it, the yeah. guy would start running down the sideline and it's like, so is someone going to enter the screen or is this guy just going to run? Like he's playing against air. Like that's base level of incompetency, which Mike yeah. McIntyre came in and eliminated in 19. Yeah. That team wasn't that much more talented defensively, but they were like uh, from went from 125th ranked defense to like 75th. Yeah made a difference if they hadn't had a maniac coaching them offensively and rich like the Oklahoma thing too, where it's like Oklahoma, yeah. if they just have an average defense, they can win a title. Yeah. Exactly. You just have to have that base level of competency, which obviously was missing from LSU last year, but you kind of, you, you said it better than I could have there was there's still the pieces to where they could have one of the better two, three defenses in the conference still, Yeah. which kind of like big picture is, as we kind of wrap this up is kind of interesting to me because when you look at LSU schedule, uh, they go to Pasadena or wherever the hell UCLA is playing these days. Yeah, and if, Pasadena. I, I have no idea. I'm not keen on the Pac-12. I'm not about to ask you to give a step. Step it up, man. I come to your podcast with Pac-12. Come on. Yeah, <laughs> Pac-12. If people come for after dark conversation, I'm just not sure it's the Pac-12 after dark all the time. So, like, given that they are able to survive that, let's just give them a win for the sake of the argument that that. Because yeah. I don't know what UCLA will be. The Chip Kelly thing seems to be more disaster than good so far. You have a shot to enter that October game, and most people would bypass Kentucky in most years, but I think they got a hell of a yeah. roster and are going to have a good team, and that's going to be one of those games where probably on the surface you're not like, oh, this has potential to have SEC game day, whatever the hell you want to call it, a marquee game of the weekend. That October 9th game at Kentucky, LSU could roll into that thing 5-0, and and if you found a way out of that, you got Florida at home the next week and then at Ole Miss. And then, of course, you get the bye week in Alabama. But, like, there's a not-so-unrealistic world where they're 7-0. and And yeah. t- everything we just talked about at the top of this podcast feels like it changes from a narrative standpoint if they're <laughs> at the end of October at 7-0. and No, I, I, I couldn't agree with everything you said more. It's, it's one of those things where their schedule just works out beautifully this year in some ways where I'm not even saying I think they're a top 16, but they could be one just by one of the things we're saying where, yeah, UCLA is actually uber experienced. I think they're like top 10 in the country and Bill Connolly's returning production, which I love that metric. They should be feisty. But yeah, we agree. Like if LSU is even close to what we think they are, they should win. So it, it's fascinating though. Cause yeah, odd years are always the best for LSU. They just want a title on an odd year because Alabama's on the road, sure, but you're you're kind of always assuming Bama's a loss, right? Like, you just have to live realistically knowing Bama's a loss, and if it's not, that's a great bonus. But knowing it's on the road, it's like, well, at least you're not wasting a home game on a loss. And Auburn's taking a step back, I think we all would assume, you know, with new staff and all that. Florida, again, I'm a a Dan Mullen believer, but, like, still, probably going to take a big step back from last year. And so those are your two main non-Bama rivals that you normally have every year. And they're taking a step back and they're home. Like, that's just like, you know, you almost, it's almost like, I think I'm more confident LSU with those games than I actually am those road games that you're mentioning, like Kentucky and Ole Miss. Like I almost like in my head, pencil and wins in those home games and just have this gut feeling they're going to either, you know, Matt, you know, Ole Miss just feisty as anyone they could win in, in Oxford or Kentucky can just be a pest and win. And, Kentucky but yeah I I think that's kind of how I view it but back to the point yeah you're right like they should the way I look at this season is they technically should be favored in maybe 11 of 12 games 
That is not how it works. That is not what will happen. But it's just that idea that it's like, oh, an A&M, I think at the end of the day, is going to be a literal toss-up. I think these teams are actually so even and it's in Tiger Stadium that it's going to be a perfect final game of the season to really find out, like, who gets to 10 wins or whatever. I don't know. But, yeah, you're right. Like, if you're 7-0 and going into Bama, you're number five in the country, lose to Bama, no one's going to blame you, beat Arkansas, beat ULM, and you go into A&M, even if you win or lose, like, the season was just a huge success. So, I, I rambling answer, but – Long story short, they're talented and their schedule works out for them. That, like, even if I don't think they're amazing, they could have a really good year. Yeah, it's the same thing. The odd year thing you're talking about is the fact that you you don't waste a home game in Alabama, like you mentioned, but you get Auburn, AM, and Florida at home. All three of huge. those are in Tiger Stadium, which is huge. And Ole Miss has kind of got the same deal this year yep. where they're they're on the road to Alabama, but two of their road games, and it just happened to work out this way, is they get Tennessee against the first year head coach. And Auburn is another road game against the first-year head coach. That's big. So it's like Ole Miss, they could not even be that good, but have some sort of weird record by that. Honestly, the LSU game in mid-October where you're like, how the hell is this team 6-1? and one? Like they, you know, yeah. I don't think they're there defensively yet, but there's a shot that they could actually be halfway decent and way better than their record, or maybe not even as good as their record, I guess what I'm getting yeah. at, because of the way the schedule sets up. And LSU kind of has the same deal. So as we wrap up – I'm trying to think the best way to ask this. What is, what is this season look like to where this time in 2022, Ed has regained some of that credibility, whatever you want to call it. And everyone like the general narrative is not talking about him on the proverbial hot seat or if it will survive the year back toward, okay, they have this thing rolling again. Now let's see what they can take the jump to. Like, what does that have to look like? You mentioned 10 and two. I imagine that's based off a prediction of you lose Alabama you win most of the home games and you either lose A&M or slip up on a road game. You should probably yeah. win. Is that kind of your thinking? Yeah, I think that's exactly my thinking. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's pretty much how I view it, where I think 10 wins is the, that should be just the goal. 11 ones doable, as we just said, but still like it's the SEC, you're going to lose one. You shouldn't It's just real life, you know? So I think 10 and two is the goal. I don't think anyone's going to be burning down houses for nine and three because nine and three in the SEC still makes you a, New Year's 16 most years, you know, like, so I don't think anyone's going to be livid at that, but because it probably the context would matter in that scenario of like, who'd you lose to? How'd you lose to him? But, but yeah, I think if you go 10 and two, you would have, that means you're number, I'm chucking up BS numbers. We're probably number seven in the country and you have, and you did it with an all it's worth mentioning. Like, yeah, they're very experienced, but like the base core of their talent is freshman and sophomores right now. It really is like, that sophomore class is loaded. Freshman class is good. Like that's the core of this team. So if you're 10 and two, regardless, or even if you're nine and three and win your bowl game, you're riding into 2022, almost like 2019, not, not the same, but that same thing of like, Oh, really solid step up year. And now your team is like uber experienced and riding a high. And it's like, you should take a leap. So yeah, I think nine and three is what you have to hit. 10 and two is what you should hit. 11 and one. And it's like, Hey man, everyone forgets 2020 ever happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. And I'm just going to go we'll in the pod with the hot take. I think LSU is the most fascinating team in the conference, to be honest, yeah. which is probably not anything new for you because it seems like it's just a constant <laughs> circus all the time covering it. So yeah. like, it's probably just business as usual. Uh, the day I mean, that hell, LSU- man, even think of 2018, that, that was the year Ed was supposed to be fired. Right. And then they go, <laughs> they win, they win the Fiesta Bowl and finish number eight. God. Yeah, what happens? It never goes how you think it will. What are you going to do in five years when this is boring? Are you going to get a new job? Are you going to write a book on the past? Like, what if this ever calms down? Do you think it ever will be? (laughs) Exactly. Look at the last two decades. They had Saban, but then he leaves for the NFL. You have Miles, and that that was never boring. And it's Ed Ogeron. When do you think it will ever be boring? Yeah, if it ever gets to that point, you you might have to do like you might have to mix things up. Like if they go eight and four back to back years in twenty thirty with no scandals, you're probably going to look around being like, okay, what what do we do here? Like I don't understand I how screwed. this works. <laughs> yeah, like can I ask I mean, about a scandal? I have a whole theory here that LSU is the best team to cover in terms of like being a sports writer because you're always going to be one of the five or six most like you know talked about teams. But okay, if you go. 12 like you're always supposed to be good and you always can be good if you but if you win a title it's a huge news it's bigger than Clemson or Bama if you go eight and four it's huge news and you're it's like it's really bad and even if you go nine and three too often you're less miles like 
there's no scenario. It's like it, it sums up this fan base maybe to some extent. There is no scenario at LSU. I can't even think of a scenario where things are just stable. Like you can't tell me any like maybe 10 and two. I think 10 and two would be it, right? If you go right. 10 and two, it's like, oh, that's about right. Yeah. No other scenario where things just normal. It's like you fucked up or you're amazing. And there's no, it's the best, it's the most interesting thing. Yeah, exactly. And then it's like, there's also, there's no other team in the state. Like Ole Miss is like, well, there's apathy with like the NCAA stuff, but like there's nothing else in the state. So like if shit yeah. is bad, it's it's interesting from the perspective where it always feels like the sky's falling. So I, I agree with that too. I'm glad you threw that one out there because I could not agree more. Because not to mention just like, I mean, if you're going to go like the full journalism side of it, if they're good, the exposure you get for covering that kind of team is, yeah. is unparalleled, particularly in yeah. terms of interest in national level. I could not agree more. And just weird personalities. It's Louisiana. Yeah. It's just, yeah, it's, it's, it's the greatest, like, running story. Like, yeah, yeah. That, that probably just nullifies my theory that you'll ever be bored. So you'll be 50-year-old Brody if he's still around the Baton Rouge area. Never but counterpoint, bored. will I live to 50 if I keep covering this team? It's a real trade-off. I don't That's know. a great point that if they promoting the drinking habits, I know you're a wine guy. At least you got that going for you. Wine is somewhat more healthy to where if you're – I had a whiskey you know, sour tonight if it makes you feel better. 18 bush lights, I might I might have less confidence in you getting to 30, but, you know, the Vino Solid seems point. to be working for LeBron. I think you're good to go. <laughs> That's one of many comparisons we have, yeah. Dude, I appreciate the time. As always, appreciate you working with me through some technical issues towards the center of that. He's Brody Miller. Check him out at Brody A. Miller on Twitter. Uh, I know most of you subscribe to The Athletic already. Check out your work. Appreciate the time, dude. We'll do this again, Gabe. Always. Dude, always a pleasure, man. Right, you have a good one. Take care. And that was Brody Miller. I appreciate the time. Uh, good conversation as always. We'll catch up with him as the LSU game gets closer uh, there in mid-October. Appreciate everyone listening. We'll have a couple more pods this week coming down the pipe. Kind of an outside-the-box guest I've been working on for the midweek, and then we will go with our Mailbag Friday. So be on the lookout for that, and everybody have a great Tuesday.